good morning, everyone. Uh, everyone else, I want to just say welcome to you too. Uh, thanks for braving the snow. Uh, for those of you watching online, welcome. I can't say thanks for braving the snow because you didn't, but we're still glad you're watching with us. So, uh, so if you're new, if you're a guest, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors on staff. And uh, today we are find ourselves in the middle of a series called The Way of Jesus as we work our way through the book of Luke. And one of the things that we discovered in the first week of this series was the reason Luke wrote his account was that he wanted a guy named Theophilus to understand both who Jesus was and what he was all about. And uh, Theophilus, like probably many others, had heard stories of Jesus and maybe rumors of Jesus. But Luke said, that's not good enough. I want you to know the truth about Jesus. And we know this because of how he started his letter. He wrote in the first chapter, he said, with this in mind, since I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning... I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know, this, know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. He says, Theophilus, I don't want you to live on rumors or hearsay about Jesus. I want you to have the facts about Jesus. And so I have carefully investigated things and I have written an orderly account so that you may know with certainty and you may have confidence, again, in both who Jesus is and what he was all about. And so today we're going to move our way into Luke chapter 7. So if you have a Bible with you, you can join me there. If you don't have one, you can use one of the seat back in front of you. And uh, if you don't own one, uh, we say this all the time, you can take that Bible home with you. You can just consider that a gift from us. Um, and so as we move into chapter 7, what we're going to find is that a pretty unique story where Jesus has this encounter with a man that actually leaves Jesus amazed. Now, normally when you read through the scriptures, it is Jesus who's leaving everyone else amazed. But this time we find a guy that does something that is so out of the ordinary that it causes Jesus to take notice. So if you've ever wondered what it would take to amaze God or if that was even possible, uh, then today's story is for you. And one other thing I want to mention before we dive in is that, so uh, I know that many of you guys have been following along with us throughout this series. You've gotten the journals, you're going the reading plan, you're doing the thing. And one of the things that you are going to start to notice is that certain themes are going to start to repeat. Right, one of the things you'll notice is that some of the ideas that Luke introduces in the first few chapters, that he is now going to reinforce those same ideas with further teachings and stories and examples from the life of Jesus. And the reason that he does that is because in the first century, this is one of the ways that a writer would communicate that something was important, right? They would repeat it. They would say it over and over as a way to say, hey, this is something that I want you to pay extra attention to. And so if you're reading along with us, one of the challenges I want to give you not only in the passage today, but throughout the rest of the series is to keep your eyes open for things that repeat, right? Because anything that is repeated was of great importance to Jesus. And whatever is of great importance to Jesus is probably something that should be of great importance to us too. So, so that's the disclaimer before we start. So we're going to start in uh, Luke uh, chapter 7, starting in verse 1. We read this. When Jesus had finished saying all of this to the people who were listening... He entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. And so as we move into chapter 7, the first thing that Luke tells us is that when Jesus had concluded his sermon, right? And so in chapter 6, if you've been reading along, he had this big lengthy sermon that he gave, and we're now told that he moves on from that physical location, and he goes back to a town called Capernaum. 
Now, if you were here last week, you know that Tony spent some time talking about Capernaum and what life was like there, and he did some really super deep scholarly research. I think it was rednecknamegenerator.com, and he, he gave me and some others, he just decided he'd have some fun and give us some new names, and so, uh, so we're back there. We're back in Capernaum. You guys know what life is like there now. And so as Luke, uh, Luke tells us that as Jesus goes back there, what happens is that Jesus receives a request from a centurion. Now, one of the other things we learned at the start of this series was that Rome would have been the dominant power in the days of Jesus. And so part of the military structure involved in stationing troops at various cities that were under their rule. And so a centurion in the Roman army would have been a commander of a century or 100 soldiers. Sometimes these men were Roman citizens that were sent there by Rome, and other times they were mercenaries who would have been hired by Rome to kind of help carry out the commands that were passed down. But in either case, these men would have been Gentiles. They would have been people who were, who were outside of the Jewish community. And normally, because of that, they would have been people who were greatly disliked by those inside the Jewish community, partly, again, because they were outsiders, but also because they rep- represented the authority of the Roman army that was ruling over them, so not generally liked people. And so the text tells us that this centurion, he has a servant who's sick, and so he sends word to Jesus asking for help. And one of the interesting things about his request is that it says he sends it via a group of Jewish elders, right? Now, given his position of authority, right, he had 100 soldiers under his command. There are a lot of people he could have commanded to go. And given his position, he actually even could have commanded Jesus to come. But it seems as if perhaps the centurion understood that maybe this is a unique dynamic. I'm a Roman soldier. I'm asking this Jewish rabbi for help. And so for whatever reason, he decides, I'm going to send this delegation of Jewish elders. Now, we don't know exactly the full extent of his relationship with them, but most commentators would agree or believe that he probably formed some sort of political relationship with the, they were kind of like the civic leaders of the community. And so there, there is perhaps this, this, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, this political relationship had probably formed. And we know from verse five already that the centurion has, has used some of his wealth to help build the synagogue in that community. And so there's a good chance that he is now calling in a favor. He's saying, guys, you know, I did some things for you and now I, I, now I need your help. And I think this is what we see happening in verse four. Right? It says, when they came to Jesus... They pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Again, I think there's a good chance that they owe this guy and they are now trying to return the favor. Now, one of the things that I want you guys to notice in this passage is this stark difference between the approach the Jewish elders take and the approach the centurion takes. Notice the language the Jewish elders use. Right? They say, this man deserves to have you do this. Right? He deserves this. And then what they do is they follow it up by giving Jesus his resume. Right? They start listing the things that he has done to help the Jewish people that in their mind somehow should earn or merit Jesus' favor. But in contrast to their approach, check out how the centurion postures himself. It's very different. Verse 6, we read this. So Jesus went with them. He was not far off from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. 
right? So the Jewish elders, they say, this man deserves your help, and here is his resume to prove it. And the centurion, well, he says the exact opposite. He says, not only do I not deserve your help, I don't even deserve to have you step foot in my house. And again, he could have postured himself as one in the place of authority because humanly speaking, right, he was. As the Roman centurion stationed in that city, he had both the power and the position to not only order Jesus to come to his house, he could have ordered him to help. But instead of demanding Jesus heal his servant, he places himself in the opposite position. Instead of declaring his own authority, he acknowledges that Jesus is actually the one with the ultimate authority, right? He positions himself under Jesus and at the mercy of Jesus. And he says, Jesus, I, I know that you're need, I need your help, but I also know that I, I deserve nothing from you, right? Like, you don't owe me anything. And if I can just pause here for a moment, I think there's actually a whole lot that we can learn from this guy. Right, if you're here today and you are investigating who Jesus is, I think one of the temptations might be to feel like you need to get your act together before you could ever consider coming and approaching someone like Jesus. Perhaps you have this narrative in your head. I don't know where you would get it from, but you have this narrative in your head. It's a very common one that maybe you, you feel like you need, to, you need to clean up your resume a little bit before you could ever consider coming back to a church or stepping foot in a place like this. There's a lot of people in the days of Jesus who felt that way, and there were a lot of people in the days of Jesus who actually taught that, right? You've already seen glimpses of this as we've worked our way through the book of Luke and some of the interactions of the Pharisees, and you're gonna see a whole lot more of it as we keep going through, but there were instances where the Pharisees basically say that to people. They say, you know what? You're not worthy to be here. You don't belong here. People like you, they, they, they shouldn't, you shouldn't be interacting with Jesus. If he knew what you were like, man, it... I don't, I don't think you belong here. But when Jesus comes on the scene, he flips all of that upside down. He teaches us that what we need is not a resume, but we need the humility to simply acknowledge our sin, to submit, to submit ourselves under Jesus, and just ask for his help. The centurion is a perfect example of that. I also think this is an important lesson for those of us who have been following Jesus for a while now. Because one of the things that will happen if you, if you are seriously following Jesus is that your resume, if this doesn't exist, but if you had a Christian resume, it would start to get better, right? If Jesus starts to refine you and shape you more and more into the man or woman that God has created you to be, it will be tempting to feel like you start to deserve certain things. Right? And so maybe you're, you're at work and there's a promotion that's coming up. And so, so you're in your mind, you're talking to God and you're praying. You're like, God, you know, I have this promotion coming up. And, and you know, you know my attendance at church. It's been pretty good lately, right? You remember that Sunday when it snowed? I wasn't one of those people online. I actually came here, right? Like, right? So God, you, you remember, right? And, you, and, and as you start to actually follow Jesus and you start to do the things that he's called you to and live out that life, right? Like, there's this thing that can sometimes happen where we start to feel like, you know, you know, I think God owes me. I think I deserve this, right? The centurion could have easily said, I built your people a synagogue, right? Can you, can you do me this favor? But I think we need to be super careful that we never bring an I deserve mentality before a holy God. Because the thing that we actually deserve from God is something that none of us want from God. 
right? For those of you who've chosen to follow Jesus, the thing that we deserve is something that he paid for on the cross for us. And the I deserve mentality, it is a dangerous place to be. And again, I think the centurion, he's a model example for us of getting this right. And so if we go back to our story for a moment, uh, even though the centurion, he knows that he deserves nothing, he realizes that, he still has this servant who needs Jesus' help, and so he asks Jesus anyways. And so this time, he, he sends his friends to Jesus, and he says, actually, Jesus, change of plans, don't come, here's my new plan, check out what he says. He says, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this. And he does it. And so I think in the, in the centurion's mind, he has this dilemma. He doesn't feel worthy to have Jesus come to him, but he knows his servant needs his help. And so he, this time, instead of sending the Jewish elders, he sends his friends, new plan, just say the word. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, as I was reading this and kind of studying this past week, one of the things that was surprising to me and stood out to me is that back in verse three, it said that he had heard of Jesus, meaning that this guy has never even personally met Jesus. But based on the stories he's heard, his logic tells him that Jesus is a man of unparalleled authority. And authority... Authority is something this centurion is very familiar with, right? Because as a centurion in the Roman army, he was under the authority of Caesar himself, who would have literally been the most powerful man in the world at the time, right? And when Caesar, when Caesar spoke, things happened, Right? When, I, when I speak, my kids, sometimes, sometimes they, they debate. They think about, am I going to listen to dad? When Caesar spoke, people didn't debate. They didn't hesitate. When Caesar spoke, they, right, like things just happened. And it's the same authority that the centurion was under that actually gave him his own power. Right? The reason the soldiers under him obeyed him without question was because the centurion was an extension of Caesar. And so the centurion rightly concludes that Caesar, just like Jesus, or that Jesus, just like Caesar, is a man of great authority. Now, we don't know for sure if he fully understood that Jesus was God himself, or if he thought that perhaps Jesus was like him, maybe he was somehow an extension of God's authority. We don't know that for sure. But we know that in either case, that he presumed rightly and correctly that Jesus had the authority to just say the word and to heal his servant. And check out Jesus' response to this. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. It says Jesus was amazed. Now the word that Luke uses here, it's used many other times in the New Testament. But almost every single one of them is about someone who was amazed at Jesus. Sometimes people were amazed at his teaching. Sometimes you read that they were amazed at his actions. Often we read that people were amazed by his miracles. But there are only two instances that I am aware of where the Bible records that Jesus was actually amazed at somebody else. One of them is here in Luke 7, 
The other is found in Mark 6. It says this. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. So interestingly enough, both times the Bible tells us that Jesus was amazed. It is in regards to somebody's faith. Here in Mark 6, he is amazed at their lack of faith. And back in Luke 7, he is amazed at the centurion's great faith. In fact, Jesus goes on in Luke 7 to say this. He says, in turning to the crowd, in turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Now, let me try and paint a picture for you of what just happened because I think it's easy to read over this and miss this. So Jesus is in Capernaum. The original group of elders, they come and they say, will you come help heal this man's servant? And so Jesus agrees. He starts walking towards it. And we're told that a crowd of people is following him. Now, we don't know exactly who's in the crowd, but we can make some assumptions based on the city that he's coming from that most of them are probably Jewish. And I think it's also safe to assume that the elders who first came to ask him to come, they're probably following him too, right? Because they owe this guy, and so they're gonna make sure that Jesus makes it there, and they're there to look good when he shows up. And so, right, so they're walking this way. They have a crowd of people following him. Second group comes, the friends come, they intercept Jesus, change of plans, just say the word, Jesus is amazed at his faith, and then it tells us that he turns to the crowd, and he says, this guy's faith is greater than all of your faith. And this guy, he's a Roman centurion, right? I have to imagine that if you were in the crowd that you could have heard a pin drop, right? I got to imagine it got awkwardly silent really quick. Because for a few thousand years, Israel has been God's chosen people in his special possession. God has given them unique access to him and his law and the prophets. And so if you were an Israelite living in the days of Jesus, you had everything in your favor to become a person of great faith, right? God has literally stacked the deck for you to get it right. And yet, when Jesus comes on the scene, it is often his own people and his own nation who are doubting him and struggling to accept him. Well, Gentiles, outsiders like this soldier, these are the ones who are seeming to get it. I think we see this same dynamic at play again in, in the next chapter of Luke. So uh, next week or whenever it is, you're gonna, you're gonna come across in Luke 8 a story where Jesus calms a storm. If you're not super familiar with the story, Jesus is on a boat with his disciples and we're told that a giant storm rolls in and it starts to get pretty rough and the winds and the waves and they're starting to, the disciples are starting to get nervous and they, they, they start freaking out. It's not exactly what happened, but they go to look for Jesus and Jesus is asleep, clearly not concerned with what's going on. And I imagine the disciples are just like, Jesus, we're gonna die, right? Like they're, they're super nervous, they're freaking out. And so Jesus, he gets up and in a similar display of his power and authority, he rebukes the storm. And just like in our story, just like the sickness, the storm, it obeys him. What I think is most insightful about that story is not actually that Jesus rebukes the storm. It is the response that Jesus gives his disciples, and it's the response the disciples have to him. Check out. Here's Jesus' response. He says, where is your faith? Right, where's your faith? 
I think it's as if Jesus is saying, like, don't you understand who I am? Do, do you still not see it yet? And I love the disciples' response because they're basically like, well, apparently not, right? Like, they say in fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him, right? His own disciples say, who is this man? And they are amazed, same word, at his authority. And so on the one hand, I think the disciples, they know that Jesus is special. They know that he comes from God. They know that he's a man of authority, right? They've already seen him do some pretty crazy things at this point. But I think that their view of him, I think it is still limited. I think that right now they see Jesus in part, and it is not until later that they will start to see him far more in whole, more fully as he truly is. And so while everybody else is amazed at Jesus' authority, while everyone else is struggling to comprehend his authority, the centurion assumes it. Even though the disciples are insiders and he is an outsider, the centurion seems to have this expanded view of Jesus that even the disciples don't have at this point in the story. And the text tells us because he sees the width and the breadth of Jesus' authority, it tells us that Jesus is amazed by his faith. And our story ends in verse 10. It says, And the men who had been sent there returned to the house and found the servant well. If you read the story in Matthew's gospel, it simply says, it says his servant was healed that very hour. And so there is a lot of stuff going on in this story. Lots of cool things, lots of lessons we can learn from it. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, for those of you who've been reading along, you should start to see there are certain themes that are starting to repeat a little bit. So with the time that we have remaining, I wanna give you guys four observations, four things that I think that Luke wants us to pay attention to as we kind of work our way through this story. So here's the first one. First thing I think Luke wants us to know is that Jesus' kingdom is for everyone. Jesus' kingdom is for everyone. So one of the themes that we are starting to see develop is that the religious people tend to care primarily for those on the inside, while Jesus extends equal, and in some cases even more care, to those on the outside, right? The centurion is a clear example of that. You don't normally help the people who are oppressing you. And in fact, as you keep reading in Luke this week, what you're gonna see is the next story, he helps a widow, and then at the end of chapter seven, he helps a prostitute and he uh, ends up getting her sins forgiven, right? And so uh, Luke, uh, just in this one chapter alone, he starts by helping a wealthy enemy soldier who has an incredible amount of influence and power. Then he helps a poor widow who has no influence and no power. And then the chapter ends with Jesus welcoming and forgiving a prostitute whom the Pharisees have cast to the side and completely given up on. So what can we learn from all of this? Well, we can learn that Jesus' kingdom is for everybody. It's for everyone. Another theme that I think starts to repeat is this. It's that Jesus is a king with unparalleled authority. Right? He's a king with unparalleled authority. Tony hit on this one pretty hard last week, so I'm not going to spend a bunch of time here again. But one of the things I think Luke is trying to communicate is that Jesus is a man of such 
such unparalleled authority that the only logical conclusion we can come to is his divinity. I think like the disciples, many of us, we probably see that in part. And I think what Luke is trying to help us do is he says, I don't want you to see, see this version of Jesus. I want you to see this version of Jesus. Because when you start to see Jesus for who he truly is, you don't just give him part of your life. You give him all your life. Right? When you start to see Jesus for truly who he truly is, you don't make him your life coach. You make him your king. And I think Luke wants us to know that Jesus is a king with unparalleled authority. Brings us to the third theme that I think we see repeating. It's this. It's that Jesus' kingdom requires humility. Right? It requires humility. In order for the centurion to, re- to receive help from Jesus, he first had to humble himself and ask for it. And I have to imagine someone in his position, he didn't have to do that very often. This was a pretty dramatic move for someone with his level of authority. And I think the same thing is actually true for us, that we, we have to ask for it, right? Because while what Jesus did on the cross is available to everyone, it is not automatically applied to everyone, right? That's something that we have to humble ourselves. We have to ask for. It takes humility. I think the same humility required to enter the kingdom is also going to be needed if you want to continue in it. Right, if you're going to declare and actually live a life that says that Jesus is Lord of my life, that means that you are not. And that requires humility, right? Jesus' kingdom, it requires humility. And I actually put these points in this order for a reason because I think, I think the more that we can get number two right, I think the more naturally number three will come. Right, I think that as we start to see a grander and bigger vision, as you start to see Jesus more fully for who he truly is in his bigness and his grandeur and his authority, the bigger you see that. Humility, that's just the natural next step, right? That just like logically makes sense. And so the better we get at this one, I think number three, I think that will start to come a little bit easier for us. And then number four, it's that Jesus is amazed by faith, right? He's amazed by faith. Now, this last one is a new theme that Luke is starting to introduce to us, and so I wanna spend a little bit more time here. Uh, The first time we even see the word faith in the Gospel of Luke was in the story that Tony taught on last week. So there was a group of guys, and they were dropping their friend through the roof, and the first time the word shows up is Jesus' response to them. This is what he said. He said, when when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, Your sins are forgiven. So that's the first time the word faith shows up in the Gospel of Luke. Second time is in our story that we're looking at today. And then the third time comes at the end of chapter seven. I mentioned this earlier that Jesus has this interaction with the prostitute and the story ends with him telling her this. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. And so the word faith is gonna start showing up over and over. It actually shows up over 15 times in the Gospel of Luke alone and it shows up 283 times throughout the New Testament, right? So that is obviously a big deal. Faith is obviously a major part of this kingdom, this new thing that Jesus is ushering in. But for as important as faith is, I do think it is something that is still a little bit cloudy for some of us. I think that if you were to go out onto the street and you were to ask people like, hey, do you believe in Jesus? And if they said yes, like what that means to them 
would mean something very different depending on who you asked. And so I think one of the things that we need to consider and the question we need to ask ourselves is what does the Bible actually mean when it calls us to be people of faith? What does that mean? In order to explain this, uh, I thought an illustration might be helpful. And so I want you guys to imagine for a moment that I am the new quarterback of the Cleveland Browns, okay? So we have some applause, anti-Baker people here who are very excited to see him gone. Um, I would probably join the list on the back of that jersey. I wouldn't last very long either. Uh, but so assume that I am the new quarterback for the Browns. And one day I'm walking through the facility and I, I see one of my receivers and I look at them and for whatever reason, I just feel compelled. And so I see them and I say, man, I, I just wanna let you know that I, I believe in you. I have so much faith in you. I just, I just feel like I, you needed to know that. But here's the question. What did I just say to them? Did I just say, whoever it is, Jarvis Landry, did I, I believe that you exist. Like, you're not imaginary. I, I don't think you're part of a figment of my imagination. I think you're a real human being. You're, you're actually here. Did I say that? Well, I guess probably that's part of what I said, right? Like, that, that would be part of it, right? But what I just said to my receiver was so much more than that. What I said was, I trust you. I said, I have confidence in you. I said, if the game is on the line, it's fourth and 10, like whatever, three seconds left on the clock, like I believe in you, I have faith in you that if I throw you the ball, that you're gonna come through for me, that you're gonna catch it. Now, this is not a perfect analogy, but I, I think a very similar thing is true when we say that we have faith in God. Does it mean that we believe in God's existence? Well, yeah, that's the starting point. But it is so much more than that. It also means that we believe that Jesus is who he claims to be, that he actually is the son of God, right? We believe that. It also means that, that we actually trust him, that we actually have confidence in him, right? It means that in the moments that matter most, we don't call our own play, but that we actually are willing to throw Jesus the ball. Right? We're putting our trust in him. It means that we're willing to trust Jesus with things like our time. And we're willing to trust Jesus with things like our finances. And we're willing to trust Jesus with things like our relationships. Because I think what we see in this passage is that what Jesus is looking for is not people with the right pedigree. It's not people who are perfect or never make mistakes. It's not people that have an awesome resume. I did this and this and I did this. Jesus, did you know I did right? He's not looking for that. What Jesus is looking for is people of faith. It's people who will rightly acknowledge him as the king that he truly is. And it's people who will actually trust him with their lives, both eternally for salvation, but also just in the day-to-day -day decisions that all of us have to make because Jesus, Jesus is amazed by faith. So I'm gonna invite the band to come back up uh, and while they're coming, uh, I just wanna encourage you guys to, I want you to think through your lives for a moment and I don't wanna carry this analogy too far but right, like when is the last time that you threw Jesus the ball? Right, like if you were someone who says, I'm a person of faith, I believe in Jesus, is that just like an intellectual thing 
Or is that something that your life, like people could look at it and say like, wow, they, they really trust him. Right, like they're really putting their confidence in him and their hope in him. They, they actually believe in him. What are the ways in which you're actually saying, Jesus, I wanna be a person of faith? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much that you are, you are a king. That you're not a small king and a puny king, but you are a king of unparalleled authority. You are a God who can follow through on the things that he says and the claims that you make. God, I pray that you would help us see that more and more. That you would take whatever vision we have of you and that you would expand it. That you would help us see you more fully for who you truly are. And God, in response to that, I hope that I pray that you would humble us. That you would help us receive that and submit ourselves under you. And then you would help us be people who live by faith. Not people who just say it, not people who talk about it. But God, would you help us be people who actually put our trust in you? People who hope in you, that have confidence that you will come through for us. Father, please give us grace in the moments when we struggle this with this when it's hard. Thank you for loving us the way you do. Father, we love you. We thank you. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.